This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. All over the world, there was this beautiful song of praise rising to Jesus, and it's never sweeter than when it's rising from people whose lives have been broken, <clears throat> broken by suffering for his name. There's just something so, uh, <laughs> so precious about that, and um, we felt profoundly honored to be standing before them and uh, humbled by what they are giving up to follow Jesus. And uh, the evidence of the Holy Spirit was so powerful, even in this place where you would think, it's so hard, it's so difficult, how could the kingdom of God possibly be happening here? And it is. And if you bend your ear to the ground, you can hear the seed of the kingdom growing. And we went to all these little churches, and at each one, there'd be a congregation in some little house with a concrete floor or even a dried cow dung floor on a mat, sitting cross-legged, worshiping God. And every time we as the honored guests would be sitting in a row of chairs up at the front. And one of these churches I went to and I, I sat down, but my chair was, it was a little bit wobbly. But I sat in it anyways, and we were having this wonderful time of worship. They had, I don't know, tambourines and drums, and people were clapping their hands, and I was just lost in, in worship. And I made the mistake of leaning a little too far in my chair. And in a moment, my chair exploded under me. Both back legs snapped off at the same time, and fragments of, pla- of, of plastic went flying across the room. And uh, one moment, I was just lost in praise to God. And then the next second, I was flat on my butt in front of all these villagers. <laughs> And the clapping barely faltered, but everyone was staring at me in, in horror. Like, this is not what we want to happen to our honored guest. And I was really hoping to make an impression, you know, as the foreign preacher, and I certainly did. They will not forget me in that church. And uh, the pastor, like, rushed over, and he was brushing me off. He was really concerned, and, you know, I sat down, very chastened in my chair, trying to get back into that state. And um, while I was sitting there with my head bowed in shame... The Lord spoke to me, and he said, it is safer to sit on the floor than in the seat of honor. And um, these are people who are sitting on the floor in the lowest place before God, persecuted and oppressed and forgotten by the world, but they are so loved by God and honored by him, and they will be sitting in the very highest chairs before God. So, ah, I could go on and on. But we do have scripture passage to get through this morning. So let's turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, and see what the Lord has to say to us today. Now, this is quite the chapter about the end times. And here I am, exhausted and wrung out with trying to uh, see what the Lord has to say to us through this. But let's... Let's begin reading Mark chapter 13, the whole chapter. Listen to the word of the Lord. 
As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and the father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So, be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But, in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. 
It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. 31 years ago, a retired NASA engineer and amateur Bible student named Edgar C. Wisenant wrote a book. It sold four and a half million copies. And the title of the book was 88 Reasons, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. He sold four and a half million copies. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. It didn't, by the way. It's hard for someone to be wrong 88 times in a row in a single book, but this guy managed it. An impressive, impressive feat. And he was so sure that he was true that he was quoted as saying this, only if the Bible is an error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town. Only if the Bible is an error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher who is in town. This guy was very sure that he was correct. And he was wrong 88 times in a row. But he sold four and a half million copies of his book, presumably many of them on credit card. He sold four and a half million copies of his book, but he was wrong. But undeterred, he wrote a book the following year about why Jesus would, would, would come in 1989. He wrote another book saying that this would happen in 1993. And his last book in 1994 was entitled and now the Earth's destruction by fire, nuclear bomb fire. And of these last three, book, three books, Wikipedia says very dryly, these books did not sell in quantity. <laughs> no one was really buying the sequel. And this poor gentleman died in 2001, embarrassed and disappointed. And he is one of a long list of people who have come up with specific dates for the end times. What is going to happen at the end of the world? That is a question that has always gripped the imagination of people, and especially intelligent mathematical types. It's a fascinating subject, isn't it? And here in Mark chapter 13, the most controversial and perhaps the most exciting chapter of Mark's gospel, Jesus begins talking about what is going to happen at the end of history. And in this chapter, Jesus is really talking about two different events that kind of overlap. And the first one is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Roman armies in the year AD 70. The temple is behind so much of this chapter. And of course, Jesus' speech, his very longest speech in the gospel of Mark is triggered by the disciples' admiration of the temple and its buildings. And the temple was truly a magnificent, awe-inspiring building, more impressive than many of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was built with stones that weighed 500 tons apiece, and it was topped with marble with gold plates on the facade. And it was said that when you came over the rise and you saw Jerusalem and its temple gleaming in the sun, it looked like a snow-capped mountain. And it would be hard to imagine anything more permanent or anything more glorious than the temple in Jerusalem. And of course, as pious Jews, 
these disciples believe this is the very dwelling place of God. It is indestructible. But Jesus is not so impressed. He's not impressed by that building because he knows that God's presence has left this temple. And the leaders and the priests and the scribes have rejected Jesus, the chief cornerstone, God's Messiah. And these guardians of the temple are full of evil and they are under the judgment of God. And this is a lesson that there is no civilization and there is no institution, secular or religious, that is so powerful or so awesome that it is immune from the judgment of God. And this temple stands under God's judgment. So Jesus is about to make some predictions about what is going to happen to the temple, how this glorious building is going to be destroyed. And in fact, later in this chapter, he says that this generation is not going to pass away until all these things about the temple happen. And there have been various explanations about what this generation means, but in Mark, this generation always means the wicked people who are around at the time of Jesus. And in the Bible, a generation represents a period of 40 years. Jesus died in either AD 30 or AD 33. And 40 years later, almost exactly, is when the temple is destroyed by the Romans. And it was preceded by a long period of unrest throughout the whole Roman Empire. Here's what the Roman historian Tacitus wrote. The history on which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. Beside the manifold misfortunes that befell mankind, there were prodigies in the sky and on the earth, warnings given by thunderbolts, and prophecies of the future, both joyful and gloomy, clear, uncertain, and clear. It was a deeply disturbing time during the Roman Empire in this period. And of course, there was massive persecution of Christians first by the Jews and then by the Roman authorities. It was a difficult, difficult time to be a disciple of Jesus. And one by one, the apostles are executed in different ways. There are many Christians who are thrown in prison and beaten and executed for the name of Christ. And of course, the book of Acts is a commentary on so much of what is happening. But meanwhile, in the land of Judea, there is a lot of unrest about the Romans. People are angry that there is a foreign pagan occupier in their land. And the Romans were, they knew the Jews were very touchy people and they handled them carefully. They gave them special privileges that other religions and nationalities in the empire did not enjoy. But in the year AD 66, there was a Roman governor who was reckless and foolish. And he made the terrible decision to loot the temple of its treasury. And that set off a conflagration. And these groups of zealots arose and began to rebel against Rome. They slaughtered thousands of Roman soldiers, and they fortified the city of Jerusalem and prepared for Roman attack. And this is a beginning of a terrible time for the Jewish people. And somewhere in this time, Jesus predicts, there is going to be an abomination of desolation set up in the temple. The abomination that causes desolation. And this is an Old Testament term that comes from the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, this refers to a Syrian general by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who in the year, I think 168 years before Christ, slaughtered a pig on the high altar in the temple. 
a horrifying act of sacrilege. That's what it refers to in Daniel. And it's not totally clear what Jesus, exactly which event Jesus is referring to. The zealots, when they took over the temple, they installed their own guy, a very unqualified person named Fanny. And there were murders in the temple. There were horrible things happening. There were a lot of factions within Jerusalem at this time fighting against each other. And of course, when Jerusalem was finally, inevitably, overrun by four legions of the Roman army under the general Titus, the Roman standards were brought into the temple. These Roman standards on the pole had a picture of the emperor or of different Roman gods, and sacrifices were offered to the emperor at that time in the Holy of Holies itself. We're not entirely sure what the abomination of desolation was, but that sign was not meant for us. It was meant for Christians living through those times. And the parable of the fig tree speaks to this. When you start seeing these events happening, it's like the fig tree in late March or April giving bud. And when these things start happening, you know the end is right at the door. It's about to happen right now. And horrifying things were happening during the siege of Jerusalem. The people were whipped up into religious fanaticism, into really a suicidal frenzy against Rome. And prophets were hired by the, the rebels to tell the people that God was on their side and that God was promising to appear at their most desperate moment. And so to trigger this event, the people burned their own food supplies while they were under siege. And there, were, there was a terrible famine. People were killing and eating their own babies. Awful, awful things were happening during the siege of Jerusalem. And in the year 70, the Roman legions finally broke through the final wall of the city. The Roman troops burst into Jerusalem. They sacked the city. And in the chaos, the temple caught on fire. It was not meant to be destroyed by the Romans. Of course, they wanted to preserve this building for their own glory. But somehow in the chaos, the temple caught on fire. And in the temple were the Jewish gold reserves. And in the intense heat of the blaze, the gold all melted and seeped into the cracks between the stones. And to get at this gold, the Roman armies ripped every stone apart in the temple so they could get everything they could. All this happened because Jesus, the cornerstone, was rejected. Jesus is the true Lord of the temple, and the temple cannot stand if Jesus is rejected. And so the Romans destroyed and looted the temple. And if you see the famous Arch of Titus in Rome, you can see the Roman soldiers carrying the menorah, the candelabra, and the table of showbread in triumphal procession. Those were things that were, that were in the holy place in the temple that no one but the priests saw, and the Romans looted those holy objects from the temple. And according to one pagan historian, the general Titus refused to accept a victory wreath because, he said, he was only an instrument of divine wrath. And Jesus warns his disciples, these terrible things are going to happen. And according to tradition, Christians, warned by an oracle, fled across the Jordan to a city called Pella, and they survived the massacres that happened. There were so many crucifixions after this event, the Romans, in fact, ran out of wood to crucify people. That's how awful it was. So much of this chapter, the first part of the chapter, is talking about this terrible event that's about to happen. But as so often happens in prophecies, especially in the Old Testament, there's kind of a double reference. 
So when you're hiking sometimes, you look ahead and you see what appear to be two mountains that are beside each other. They seem to be on the same plane. What you don't realize is that there is a deep and wide valley between those two mountains. And what appear to be together are, in fact, quite a distance apart. And this happens all the time with prophecies in the Bible, especially because God's experience of time is far different than our own. And a thousand years for us are merely a day for God. And what we see as separate and widely distinguished events in God's plan are basically the same event. So this chapter is also, it's not just talking about what's going to happen to that generation, but also the Son of Man coming with power and glory, which can refer to nothing else but the final return of Jesus to judge the earth. It's going to be visible, it's going to be terrifyingly awesome, and it's going to be undeniable. And when that sign happens, there will be no mistaking by anybody. That is a very quick summary of what this chapter is teaching about events in the end times. But it's interesting that in Mark chapter 13, there are seven, 17 imperatives. Jesus is not concerned merely to give us information. He wants to encourage, exhort, and admonish us to be disciples of Christ who are faithful to him no matter what happens. And so this afternoon, I want to share with you four things I believe that Jesus is telling us to do in light of the end of history. Four things that Jesus wants us to do. The first one is this. Number one, ignore anyone who predicts the end times. Ignore anyone who predicts the end times. I'm aware I'm making what might seem to be an outrageous statement to some people, but this is clearly what Jesus is trying to say in Mark chapter 13. He is warning us strongly against future speculation at the price of present obedience. Our job is not to try to figure out what's going to happen at the end of history. Our job is to obey God now. The Bible often speaks about how God is going to bring history to a conclusion, how God is going to judge the world and bring final salvation. And the point of that always, always is to warn and encourage, never to provide data for intellectual amusement. You do not need to have the Holy Spirit in your heart to start tearing apart the Bible and adding different numbers together. And a lot of this prophetic stuff, I must say, attracts the same type of person who consults horoscopes and goes to see fortune tellers. There is something that is universal in the human race. We want to know how everything turns out. And it gives people who feel a lack of control in their lives, a sense that they know the destiny of what is going to happen. And we all have this impulse. Here is what we need to know and what all Christians have always agreed on. Evil is going to get stronger and stronger while the gospel goes out to all nations. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church and the gospel is going to be preached to every tribe and tongue and nation under heaven. And Jesus is going to return to this earth physically and visibly. And he will defeat Satan. He will crush all of his and our enemies. The dead will rise from their graves. And everybody, living and dead, is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The evil, the unbelieving, are going to be, are going to be sent to their punishment in hell. And those who belong to Jesus are going to spend eternal life with God in a renewed heavens and a renewed earth, without sickness, without tears, or without death. 
And that is what Christians of all times and of all places have always believed. And that is what we need to fix our hearts and our minds on. Exactly how this is going to happen, we are not told. In fact, there are no signs that tell us when Christ will return. There are zero signs that will tell us exactly when Jesus is going to descend from heaven. None. Jesus lists a number of signs that are actually not signs. Here are what are not signs. Wars and rumors of wars. Those are not signs of the end. Earthquakes are not signs of the end. Famines are not signs of the end. Persecution and betrayal are not signs of the end. These things must happen, but the end is still to come. Don't be alarmed. Don't panic. Don't freak out. These are just the long, long birth pains preceding the end. And this is just the lot of the world and the lot of the church in whatever time is going to be spent between Christ's ascension into heaven to the right hand of God and his visible descent to this earth. That is what it is always going to be like. Here's what else is not a true sign. Signs and wonders given by false messiahs and false prophets. There will be people appearing who do amazing, amazing things. Very difficult, impossible to explain away. They will be totally convincing and totally wrong. So convincing that they would deceive, if possible, even the elect. Even the elect if possible, apart from God protecting, would be deceived. There are many people smarter than us who will be deceived. Many people who know their Bibles far better than anyone here who will be deceived. But those are not signs. Totally convincing, but totally wrong. The angels in heaven do not know when Jesus is going to come back. And even the Son himself, while he was on earth with his limited human understanding, did not know when he was going to return. So how on earth do you think you are going to figure it out? What kind of arrogance does it take for someone to think that they can pry into what an angel or an archangel or even Jesus Christ himself did not know? Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, should be burned into your mind. There are things, let's turn to that passage, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The last verse of that chapter. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. There are secret things. There is a plan that God has for the world. And he has not chosen to share it with us. There is a plan. Things are not happening at random. God knows what he's doing, but we do not need to know exactly what God is planning to do. We don't need to know. It would not help our discipleship if we knew the date Jesus was coming back. In fact, it would hinder our discipleship if we knew. It would make you a worse disciple if you knew the day that Jesus was coming back. Verse 35, Jesus says, keep watch because you do not know. Keep watch because you do not know. Our very ignorance helps us to be better disciples. It is intentional. God holds things back from us because if we knew that Jesus was going to return in, say, 2097, 
we would be highly tempted to kind of goof off until then, wouldn't we? He's coming back then. We can just take it easy. And if the servants who were told to keep watch knew that the master was going to come back at 7.28 in the morning, they would, of course, go straight to bed and set their alarms for 7.15. That is not what God wants us to do. And therefore, Christians, we need to be highly cynical of anyone who appears with charts and timetables. They are wrong. They are mistaken if they are not, in fact, lying to us. It is false teaching. And we need to have clear and alert minds so that we can detect it. Staying gullible does not honor God. Staying gullible is not being a good disciple. God does not want any of us to be naive and easily led astray by anyone on YouTube or television or with a website who comes up with some seemingly compelling schedule for when Jesus is going to return. Stay away from those kind of people. God does not want you to know because it would only harm you as a disciple. When we were in India, I spent a lot of time in the back of this little hatchback as we went from village to village to village. And I realized while I was there that if it was not for this brother and his friends, and I was suddenly left alone, I would be hungry and lonely and afraid. I would barely survive a day there. And they drove me around, and I had no clue where we were going. I didn't even know the name of the next village we were going to. I didn't even know who we were talking to. I had no map with me and no directions. But I didn't need to know that because they did. All my concentration had to be at the task at hand at the next place. That's what I need to be focusing on. And if I had started peering over their shoulders and offering advice and asking questions, it would only have distracted me from what God was calling me to do. And the same thing with our walk in the world. God is driving the car. He's driving the vehicle of history. And we can trust that he is going to bring it to its destination and that he's going to follow his schedule stop by stop by stop. And our focus needs to be not on trying to figure out what God is doing, but how we can obey God with what he has told us to do. Look, if you have finished obeying everything God's commanded to you, then feel free on your own time to try to figure this stuff out. But until then, you have more important things to do. So that's my first point. Ignore anyone who predicts the end times. That's a very liberating point, isn't it? Okay, number two. Trust that world chaos is under God's control. Trust that all the chaos in this world is under God's control. If you read the book of Revelation, this is the message you receive again and again and again. That whatever horrors are happening, whatever terrifying things are happening in the heavens, the Lord Almighty reigns, and everyone is going to bow to him. And Jesus says in this chapter about all these wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes that such things must happen. God reigns, and in God's purposes, this is a necessity. But all the rivers of history flow in channels that God has prepared for them. So don't be alarmed, no matter what happens. It's all part of God's plan. There's no need to panic, even if the world is falling around your ears. God is in control. And in fact, Jesus tells us that for the sake of the elect, God cuts short those days. If not, no one would endure it, but God cuts them short because he's in control of the timetable. And that's striking in this passage 
that Jesus refers three times to the elect, a term I don't think he uses anywhere else in the Gospel of Mark. But here, in the context of the end times, Jesus speaks about the elect, and the emphasis is always on God's sovereignty, God's choosing, and God's keeping of his people even in terrible times. And as we face the end of the world, we're not left to our own devices and our own strength into holding on to Christ. It's the great truth that Jesus holds on to us. And therefore, we are going to endure to the end if we belong to him. We are the elect for whom God shortens world distress. Verse 20. We are the elect whom he's going to protect from deception, even by signs and wonders. Verse 22. And we are the elect whom the angels are going to gather from the four winds when, Christ's re- when Christ returns. No believer in the most remote place, no matter how small, is going to be forgotten by Jesus' angels. The gospel must be preached to all nations, and then everyone returns back to Jesus at the center. In verse 31, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That is a remarkable claim by Jesus. This is echoing words from Isaiah, talking about the word of the Lord, which will never pass away. And here Jesus is taking something that is true of God alone and applying it to himself. My words will never pass away. Even if the universe burns around you, my words will remain. The words that Jesus speaks are the ones that created the world. It's by the word of Jesus' power that the world is upheld, And it's the voice of Jesus that is going to cause all of the created order to become undone. So, trust that world chaos is under God's control. Number three, the third command, endure persecution as a faithful witness to the gospel. Jesus warns that his disciples are going to be handed over. They're going to be arrested, betrayed, and killed. There's no escape hatch to avoid suffering and death. And Jesus gives no advice and no promises about how to evade arrest and escape from prison. This is part of God's plan for disciples. And anyone who follows the master must follow him along the way of the cross. And just like Jesus, we will appear before councils and synagogues and governors and kings because we're following Jesus and his mission. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. And in Matthew's account, and then the end will come. Even in the midst of terrifying persecution, the mission of the gospel goes forward. And suffering and persecution are no reason to press the pause button so that we can regroup. Even in that time, maybe especially in that time, God is growing his church and sending the word of grace to all the world. And there's this wonderful promise that should we ever be arrested, should we ever be brought before trial, We don't have to worry about what we're going to say. It's not up to us to defend ourselves, to convince other people in that situation. The Holy Spirit will give words to persecuted Christians to vindicate the power of the gospel. Uh, One of the people we met in India, his name was Pradeep, a pastor in Faradabad, which is south of Delhi. He's from a Hindu background also, a Brahmin. He came to Christ when he was 17, one of the last members of his family. And uh, they began a church, and this was controversial in their neighborhood, and this was in the late 90s, there were great troubles, and they were summoned before the police, and they asked pastors in the neighborhood to, like, could you please come with us? And most of them 
were like, no, you're, you guys are on your own. And so they went to the police and they were basically being interrogated. What is this message you are preaching? And they faithfully explained, this is the gospel, this is the message of Jesus. And um, they were required to report every week before Sunday, what is your sermon going to be on? So he got to preach twice. Before he preached to his own congregation, he would preach to these policemen in the police headquarters. And um, their Hindu opponents brought a guru, a famous guru from, from another town, to come and confront these young and audacious Christians. And um, Pradeep, who was 17 or 18 at the time, God gave him the courage to you know, confront this person and kind of have like a David and Goliath moment. And by the grace of God, he just simply and powerfully preached the gospel and explained who Jesus is, why he's the only one who can save from sin, and why they had turned from their idols to the living God. And the guru looked at him for a long, long moment, and he said to the police, these are, these are good boys. They're not doing anything bad. Let them, let them do their thing. And all the, you know, all the people who had brought the guru were very angry that he had failed them. And Pradeep and his Christian friends said, well, he's your guru. You should respect him. And in that moment, God gave him the power to speak the truth of the gospel in that situation. In his case, they were allowed to go free and permitted to keep on preaching. But there's not a promise that's going to happen. The promise is not you will be able to speak so powerfully you will be released. The promise is people will not be able to withstand the force of God's truth. And perhaps the only way they can stop it is by murdering you. But that is what God is going to give you the power to do. It's amazing that in Luke's version, Jesus says, you will be killed, but not a hair of your head will perish. You will be killed, but not a hair of your head will perish. God is doing something more powerful than death in his preservation of us. And suffering disciples need to know that God, at the end of history, is going to break through to deliver them. And while we were in India, I had this, I realized what so many of these psalms are about. The psalms about being surrounded by evil and being threatened by enemies. And we Westerners, we tend to skip over that stuff as irrelevant when in our devotions. But it was very real to our brothers and sisters there. They are surrounded by fire, and they are trusting God through that. And Jesus promises this. Everyone's going to hate you because of me. Being a Christian is not going to help you win friends and influence people. You will have a new family, but you're also going to have new enemies because of Jesus. And some of us are enslaved to being liked by people. And nothing horrifies us more than someone being angry at us or disliking us. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to crucify that craving, because following me means... You're going to accept that you're going to have to accept that people are going to hate you. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Not the one who's up here raising his arms and dancing and doing the most charismatic Holy Spirit kind of things, but the person who endures to the end, that long obedience in the same direction. Faith is like a tea bag. It's only in hot water that its true color is revealed. And it's only when we are forced to count the cost that 
It is revealed to God and even to our own hearts whether we are truly following Jesus or just going along for the ride. Okay, my last point as time. Here also, the end is coming soon. The last point, be ready for the master's return at any time. Be ready for the master's return at any time. In all of Christianity and theology, there's always an action and a reaction. So some people are all crazy and hyped up with end times hysteria. The rest of us are like, I don't want to hear about any of that stuff. Let's close up the book of Revelation and put that away because that freaks me out. And we have to avoid that danger. All this stuff ought to be deeply comforting for us and is an essential element of being a disciple of Jesus. We can't just ignore this stuff. Here are a few reasons why you should care. Number one, we cannot be content with the evil in the world. There are terrible things going around this planet, terrible evils and atrocities that are being committed. And we can't just be content to have our own personal soul saved and let the world go to hell in a handbasket. We should be agonizing and anguishing for the suffering that is going on around us, just like Jesus himself does. And if we love Jesus, we should be longing for his appearance. We have never seen him physically, but we love him. We have never stood before his face, but our trust is in him and we have committed to follow him no matter what the cost. But the longing of our heart should be for Jesus Christ to appear and for him to have his victory, for every knee to bow to him and for him to be exalted and to receive from God everything that he deserves. And we should also be groaning for our own salvation. We are not fully saved because full salvation only happens when Christ returns we receive the resurrection of our bodies and our full adoption as sons and daughters of God. We are not fully saved, and we still haven't found all that we are looking for. And of course, we ought to be filled with anguish for those who are suffering and for martyrs in the faith, because when one part of the body suffers, the whole body should be in pain. And so we should be crying out with them, Lord, how long? And in Jesus' little parable at the end of this chapter, the master does not return in the day. And this is surprising because in the ancient world, people didn't travel at night. That was asking to be robbed and killed by highway bandits. But this master appears in the night, sometime in the night. There's four different watches in the night. Anytime he might appear. And the exhortation is watch, watch. And watching, the word watching, really means be alert and sleepless. It's not so much about looking down the road to see when he's going to appear as being focused on the task that he has given you as his servants. When Jesus returns, you will not be quizzed on the accuracy of your predictions of the end. We are all going to be wrong about a lot of stuff, and we're not going to be in trouble for that. Nor will you get extra credit if you were the one who managed to predict the exact day or time. Jesus is not going to be impressed by that. He doesn't care about that. You will be quizzed and you will be judged on the faithfulness of your discipleship. So why are you not focusing on that? Be a servant who is awake and ready. There's kind of an amusing incident in the Gospel of Acts when Jesus ascends into heaven and he goes up into the clouds until he vanishes from the disciples' sight. And they're all standing there 
staring up with their mouths open as well they might. And then an angel appears and says, men of Galilee, why are you staring up into heaven? Go back to Jerusalem and begin the mission that Jesus has given you. We should not be staring up into heaven with our mouths open. We should be focused forward on what Jesus has commanded us to do to preach the gospel to all nations. Jesus wants us to be full of spiritual vigilance, both in times of danger and in times of boredom, which may be the scenario that has caused us to fall asleep more than any other. The Lord's delay brings out the true character of his servants. Jesus has delayed. He has delayed his coming for a long time, for century after century after century. But he could appear at any moment. At any moment, the master's shadow could fall across your work. What will you be doing when Jesus appears? Something shameful, something sinful, Have you been so invested in the stones of Jerusalem and its temple or the system of the city of Babylon that you have forgotten that there is a kingdom coming? There is a king coming. We need to wake ourselves up from the dreams of this world to be wide-eyed and alert, expecting Christ to come. And our prayer always ought to be, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And let's bow our heads now and pray that prayer. Jesus, we are here as your disciples. We are here to obey you. We are here to follow you. We thank you for your voice in this text. Help us to be faithful to you, Lord. And we pray that we would so live our lives in light of the end, that we would not be ashamed at your appearing, but that when the stars fall from the sky like rotten fruit and the sun goes out and the Son of Man flashes from horizon to horizon like lightning that our hearts would fill with joy. Lord, make us eager. Help us to groan, to long, to look forward to, and to prepare the day of Christ's return. And Lord, thank you that you have also given us the opportunity to hasten the day of his appearing by preaching the gospel to all nations. Give your Holy Spirit so that we might have words wherever you place us, words of grace and words of power. May you come quickly. Come quickly, O Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.